0: Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is the Distraction Pieces Podcast, episode 415, and it's a bonus. It's a Monday bonus, and you're welcome. I'm joined today by Paul Chowdhury, who I adore. I went on his podcast a little while ago. I was a fan of him already. I've watched a few of his shows, I've seen him in numerous things. I loved him on Taskmaster, as many people did. So I was delighted to jump on Zoom with the lad. Before we get into the podcast, He's on tour. We talk about it briefly, his family-friendly comedian tour. I mean, tonight, if you're listening on the Monday, he's in Birmingham and then he's in Bath. I think he's in London after that. Dudley, no, maybe Birmingham, Dudley, Newcastle, Portsmouth, St Albans, York, Bradford, Brighton, Northampton, Sheffield, Peterborough, Leicester. He's in a lot of places. Manchester, Ipswich, Nottingham, all these places and all before the end of the year. So you want to get involved in that. Um, if this is your first time tuning in, w- one episode you might want to check out was the one a couple of weeks ago with Jimmy Carr. That was a great one. But previous comedians I've had on include... I mentioned Guz Khan in, in this episode. So Guz, but I mentioned Stuart Lee. I've had Stuart Lee on. Sarah Pascoe, Ashlyn B. All of, the, all of the funny Russells, all three of them. Frankie Boyle, Alex Horn. Tim Key, loads of really good people. Obviously, we're brought to you as ever by Speech records.com. That's where you can get all my merch. You can also get my limited edition double white vinyl 10-year anniversary edition of the Distraction Pieces album that's got a spoken word version of the whole album that I recorded in the woods in Vancouver. So that's cool. You can get all sorts of good stuff over there, or you can hit me up on Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Pip. Let's get on with the podcast eh? This is episode four hundred and fifteen of the Distraction Pieces podcast with the one, Paul Chaudhry. This piece of fiction is the intro to destruction. Pieces. This piece of fiction is the intro to Distraction This piece of fiction is the intro to the This piece of fiction is the intro to the Pieces. I genuinely, I've got um. A pillow here that's a bit of art by a guy called Riker, and I turned it round just before we came on because I felt it felt a little bit Dave. And as you know, my real name is Dave, so I suddenly it says so fucking lutely" on it, but it's art, but that also feels a little bit Dave. So I panicked and turned it over be- before you came on. But I should mention that I'm here with with actor, comedian, and now podcaster Paul Chowdhury. How are you, mate? I've now entered your
1: world of debauchery.
0: You're in. You're in the world. How are you finding podcasting? It's good fun, right?
1: It's all right, actually. It's different because um, obviously I interviewed you about your life yeah. and now the shoes are on the other foot. The tables have turned. They have. And now it's my turn to take the beating.
0: It is. Well, before we get into it, just how are you? How is everything? Is everything okay? Obviously, it's been a weird year for everyone. I like to check in at the start these days. Are you good? Have you been good? Well, I talk about this in my new tour show. Hey, guys, are you well? You're a comics scout and say,
1: hey, are you yeah. well? Tell me a joke. You, what the, you're wasting my time yeah. with this shit. <laughs> Let's get to the meat of this shit. What is this? Hey, guys, are you? No one cares.
0: It's proper American, isn't it? That first minute or two of just, just having a nice interaction and catch up yeah. with the audience rather than hey. just hear some jokes.
1: You get on a podcast. Hey, how have you been? I've heard from you outside of this podcast. So what are you asking <laughs> me on here for? You absolute piece of shit. You never ask me how I am in private. Oh, there's an audience. Are you
0: well? (laughs) (laughs) It's true. It's true. Uh, But yeah, I guess it's funny as well with podcasts. Have you found any drop in interaction? Because I find like a a lot of my mates, I feel like I'm talking to all the time, but just everyone's got a fucking podcast now. So I feel I know how their life is going. Mm. I know what's going on. And then you go, oh yeah, I've not actually dropped you a message in uh in however long
1: that's the trick is don't contact them ever yeah until it's a podcast or a, uh, actually mine's called a podcast because everyone's got
0: a podcast a, yeah because
1: everyone's got a podcast you see so i call it a podcast yeah. i'm the only entertainer with a podcast
0: that's good that's, you've got your your usp right
1: i've got my usb there yeah my usb <laughs> is it usb or p
0: either or um <laughs> uh, have you found the podcast the podcast has been good in this weird time, like you've had people like Stuart Lee, James A. Goldie, Ed Gamble, Mark Silcox, loads of really good people. Have you enjoyed the interaction in a time when interaction is limited? I'm not a
1: very interactive person in general, Dave. I, um, I'm a reclusive type of individual. The only time you see me is on stage. So when people see me out in the open, it's like seeing the a boned little small man or something, like yeah, like a Bigfoot sighting or something. You you've got to keep it exclusive. Do the right projects. Don't do any old shit. So when I get off, I do get offered a lot of podcasts, but there's very few I do. I think you're the
0: first I've done outside of my podcast for a long, long time. It's exciting. It's an honour. On the Stuart Lee episode, he claimed he'd never done a podcast before. He did mine about six years ago, but it was probably before... He knew what podcasts were, mm. so I like that kind of exclusivity, these rare guests.
1: Since Stewart very rarely does um, podcasts either. Um,
0: Proper or interviews in general. in general. That's why I was so excited to see him on there, because you two have got history in the in, in in the game as such. So, yeah, that was a fucking great chat, man.
1: Yeah, I've known Stuart for, what, 22, 23 years? When I was a new comic, he was already quite legendary in the game, so... I ended up being on benefit bills with him, and uh, I've done plenty of shows with the guy. So, and it's quite humbling for someone like him to enjoy my work because he's someone yeah. I think is one of the best, arguably on on the planet at the moment. And if yeah. you've seen his stand up, for those that haven't seen Stuart Lee, it's uh, he's on another level of of, of comedy.
0: Hundred percent. But he's he's also one that um, I loved having him having him on my podcast. I loved hearing him on yours because I've seen loads of his shows over the years but it's a character he talks cool. about it in fact he's built this character of being really I was worried the first time I had him on b- b- because I'd m- I'd met him because we'd done some shows together we'd got on but still I was like I don't know if I'm going to have him on and he's going to really be offended by every question I ask and not but he's just a lovely laughy ch- chap kind of in real life yeah he know? he
1: says it's stutely. the character And that's actually something we get into in the podcast. We talk about how, well, a character, you should have changed the character's name then rather than these. So so this is Paul Chowdhury, the character. Now I'm Paul Chowdhury, the person. Well, no, it's Taif, the character, and then Scrupius Pip. You've kind of given yourself two (laughs) different names. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Which I think Stuart slightly messed up there by giving his character the same name as himself.
0: Yeah. It's a weird one, though. Well, I mean speaking of paul chowdhury the person i've not really heard you talk much about you Mm. kind of thing so i want to kind of get into where you grew up and your kind of root into comedy because one of the things i touched upon it when i was on with you one of the things i've always really respected about you is that you proper hustled and built this audience prior to turning up on our tvs like you know there's that set you might call it the Avalon route, I know you're with Avalon, this isn't an insult to Avalon, but there is that route of, here's the TV sh- shows sh- you do. In the DVD days, I worked in HMV, and I knew that if we saw this person on this TV show and that TV show, his would be the big DVD this Christmas, and that's kind of, you'd, you'd plan your ordering around it almost, so, but you seem to go a different r- route. So so right back at the start, where did you grow up? What was your upbringing like?
1: Yeah, um, back to, I'll tell you about my upbringing, but Interesting you have that perception of the comedy scene being this route, whereas you're quite correct in that sense because they get put on the panel shows, they get put on this, this, and this. Then all of a sudden, they may do Live at the Apollo on the BBC, which will then potentially launch them to bigger things to perhaps one day selling the Apollo in their own right.
0: <laughs> now, Yeah, imagine. Yeah. Imagine reaching that level after.
1: Exactly, after things. all that backing. But I actually sold out the Apollo the day before recording my first ever DVD, What's Happening, White People, at the Hammersmith Apollo in 2012. And the next day I did Live with the Apollo. So I had to get to that point first before getting to the point of being booked on that TV show. I wouldn't say allowed, but booked on the TV show because um, I already got to that point after years and years of working the road and hustling and, you know, without sounding like bitter or twisted or anything but back when I started in the late 90s there were no diversity quotas within the entertainment business so yeah there was no discussions of a, a black bond or which I also find quite offensive because it shouldn't just be a black bond it should be a bond of any racial background why is it yeah because you, oh what about the black like what, what about race in general rather than you can tend to see and see through and you pick up on things when people talk about Oh, I and mean, how come there's no black this or white this? It's there's, there's more than two races out there, mate. You know. It's, yeah,
0: it's quite literally not black and white. It, it,
1: exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, I'd already got to that point and and hustling and putting out YouTube videos when YouTube started and and all these things and and performing on the road and booking up little theaters on my own without any industry backing, without an agent, and then audiences then trusted in you. I think stand-up is a live art form and it's like you're an actor and you probably strive more from performing on theatres and stages than doing TV work. And there's no disrespect to TV actors, but it's a very different type of craft. And it's the same with stand-up because yeah. your 20-minute set on the Apollo will get cut up to a 12-minute set and it will get broken down and they'll use an eight-minute version for the quick edit and then the 12-minute version for the longer broadcast. And it's the same with theatre. When I perform on tours, I'm doing an hour and a half on the tour, a couple of tours previously, I was doing two and a half hours and just straight stand-up, and that's where you experience a real performer rather than seeing them on a panel show, which is four hours cut down to 28 minutes. If me and you spoke yeah. for four hours, we're going to get a bankable 28 minutes.
0: Yeah, that's madness, isn't it? It's, it's, it's such a weird way, the way it all works, though, because I've had comedians I'm a big fan of, comedians I'm friends of get their slot on TV, and I've been hugely excited about it happening... Because it's exposure, it's a it, you know exposure's is a, a rare thing these days. There's less and less places you can can get that. But I can hardly think of any who I think have come across as good as I know them to be on Apollo on on Russell Howard's. The only one that ever uh, comes to mind is 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 Fern because I think she absolutely s- smashed it and 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 her set made sense. But almost everyone else, it's amazing to see them on there. But then you go that's nowhere near as good as the, the hour-long sh- show mm. that I've seen. Mm. And, yeah. you know, it's a weird dichotomy in that respect. Well, exactly.
1: It's a club set. It's very clubby. They're there for the jokes rather than the persona. When you come and see someone on tour, you, you're you spending time in someone's company. And it's, yeah. it's a very intimate art form. And that's why people think they can heckle comics where they don't heckle actors doing plays. But they think yeah. they're part of the show almost. And... um TV stand-up is is very different to, and I've done very minimal TV. I've only done the Apollo twice. I hosted stand-up for the week in the last ever season. I was actually the first ever non-white host of a mainstream comedy show at that point. Wow. And that was 2014. But and back in 2012, there hadn't been a British Indian comic on live at the Apollo or things. It was there were breakthrough moments in that sense. And doing minimal TV is is quite interesting because. It was the public that latched on to the performance, and they—they're the ones who really took to it. Because without yeah. the audiences enjoying that performance in twenty twelve, I wouldn't have been able to go on to tour and then sell DVDs and, um, and and continue to work today. It's really the live audience that make you who you are in stand up. And there are comics that just do TV, and then they'll go out on the road, and no one turns up because it's an yeah. it's a manufactured Britain's Got Talent type of. Um, well, even that, I'd say X Factor more so, because Britain's Got Talent now have comics on there. And, yeah. and sometimes they struggle to sell tickets because they've been almost overexposed to millions and millions of people quickly within a, within a short spurt. And then like people are well, we don't quite know this person. Whereas when you keep on hitting that road, you've got to do the road work.
0: Yeah, I, th- I completely agree. I think it's how you get the flash in the pan moments as well, because people will have that exposure, but they've not done the years to... People may turn up to one tour and go, "Ah, oh, that wasn't that wasn't quite what, what I expected." But 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 you'd done that roadwork, so when they do turn up, they're all over. It. But it's in. I, I've talked to to Gus Khan about this a lot because he spoke about his decision to kind of fuck off chasing the panel shows and chasing Edinburgh Fringe and chasing all of these usual things and do what he does for his crowd. And I don't even mean an Asian or, or Muslim crowd. I mean a Midlands crowd, like literally his local area and that built and built and built. And then when he turns up on, on Taskmaster or whatever else, or on all these Netflix shows, he's got, he's, he's done the work. He's, he's, he's got there off his own back. You know, he's ready. He's in the right place.
1: Yeah. Well, he hasn't toured yet as of yet, because he's relatively new in the world of comedy yeah. and he's done yeah. exceptionally well in a short space of time. And, um, yeah, it's an interesting,
0: all ju- local. All local. Yeah,
1: an interesting mm-hmm. journey he's had. Uh, yeah, good luck to the guy. He's, he's done well in terms of getting his sitcom, um, but stand up and uh, a soul stand up growing up to say Billy Connolly and Pryor and George Carlin, probably one of my favourites of all time, Jackie Mason. You know, these are comics that did a couple of hours when you went to see them live and that's kind of you don't see you're not you are not going to see that on T V. You're not gonna see no. and that's kind of what I strove to thinking can, can I that's it was like an impossible mission but can you get to that point of doing tour after tour you know I'm on my say seventh or eighth tour I'd say my fourth official in terms of a release but I've done about eight nine tours now maybe more but yeah. <laughs> just touring you know at that, to- at that time you didn't even have a name for the tour I just used to go and perform in theaters with different shows and then I had to structure myself and think no actually every tour has to have this same material people are like, oh do you do the different do you do different material on every show on the tour? I'm like, no, it's like we're going to watch Cats. Now, this title is What's Happening White People that had that material on that show. PC's yeah. World was that material. Live in it on Amazon Prime that had that material. Now, Family Friendly Comedian is the theme of my new show. So, But people tend to come back because of my improv. Um, I tend to improvise around the material, which makes it a very organic experience if you're in the room in a different part of the country.
0: Yeah, I, I, I love it. And that improv... From what I've I've have listened to, to to you speak on, a lot of that is built is b- because of your experience coming up. Because you mentioned, as example, Pryor and Carl in there, and in the days that you were first coming up, there were white comedy gigs and there were black comedy gigs, and they were very different gigs. There were there grew to be more Asian comedy gigs as 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 well, right? And it, you know there was a variation and you would do all of them, right? And you'd have to adapt to, 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 to work w- to, to, depending on what room you're in as such.
1: Exactly. At that point, the black comedy circuit was, was came around. I mean, that's simplifying it slightly, but it, it was a product of itself because black comics weren't booked on TV shows, on panel yeah. shows, on, and it was a circuit they had to create to work. It was similar to what happened in New York in the Catskill era in, in the 60s and the 50s. Jewish comics wouldn't get the mainstream gigs. So they created a Jewish circuit and
0: yeah.
1: a rabbi who was Jackie Mason turned to stand up comedy. Now, when, when I performed on the black circuit and I would say, I'm not conventionally but I'm an, I'm an Indian man and British born. I would perform on the black circuit because I was quite uh, tuned into the culture and uh, the experience and being very working class. And it was a very similar experience that people had on that black circuit. So my act tend to work. And then when I'd perform on the mainstream circuit and there was no say Indian circuit as such, yeah. I, I almost I spoke to a promoter on the weekend who does, um, a, he's created like an Asian circuit called Desi central, which goes around the country. And he said, this, exists because you started touring really and when I I remember when critics used to come to my show I won't name the critics but I remember in on my second DVD probably one of the biggest comedy critics said I'm at the Apollo and uh, the Apollo's never seen this many Indians or Asians before and he has to make a point of that now what difference does it make they're coming out to shows Mm -hmm. but what you would never say the Apollos never seen this many Jews before. If a Jewish com- or Chris Rock was on, it's never seen this many Black people before. Yeah. And it was almost—I found it quite offensive. But uh, critics, white middle-class male critics, had to point out that there's a lot of Asians in these crowds, and it hasn't been seen. We've never seen this before.
0: It's a weird thing to 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 point out, isn't it? If it's mm. if it's trying to explain or justify the popularity in some way, or trying to diminish in some way, you're trying to make it not about your talent and skill but solely about your race which is is ridiculous and if the Apollo hasn't seen this many Asians <laughs> b- before then what has it been doing wrong <laughs> How has it been putting them all off why yeah you don't you know what I mean what did it take and yeah how's it going to keep them coming in and being being regular you know it's such an odd thing to uh, to specify and
1: that was interesting that you point out that there was that black circuit and I would perform and it was a different type of act that worked yeah yeah when i performed at the hackney empire on a friday night rice and peas and then i'd go and perform at the comedy store on the weekend and they were all in silver white stuff like like why are these crowds not intermixed and now you go yeah. to clubs and now the diversity quotas and and there are many more females on the bill and i make it i, I do try and get as many female comics exposure on my podcast and i I know you get a quite a mix on, on your podcast, yeah. but it's very important to have diversity and, and it shouldn't be like in the 70s when I would watch TV and thinking, this is, well, this is great, but I'm never going to be able to achieve this.
0: Do you feel the internet has helped with that because comedy is that much more accessible to anyone and everyone, whereas Hackney Empire, that was gloriously known to service the black community in in Hackney at that point from all sorts of things from 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 theatre to comedy to parties to everything you know whereas your central london stuff would be a a lot more white so it will have been on either side it will have been a more intimidating thing to cross that threshold and go and be the one black person in that crowd or the one white person in, in this crowd still would happen, I'm sure, but more of a, a a thing, whereas if you've just got into these comedians, you'll go to wherever they're playing rather than here's what's on, as you say, on Friday night at Hackney Empire.
1: Yeah, back then, exactly as you explained there, was you were, and I was, the only non-white person in that room. And that's where that catchphrase came about in 2012 for my first DVD. I'd walk out on stage. The room was entirely white. Maybe there was a non-white door member of staff. Maybe, yeah. you know, yeah. and black comics would address that. And it was like, that was, I would walk out and I'd say, what's happening white people? And that was where yeah. the phrase came from. Now, yeah. Yeah. because I was the only, non- and now people, and you watch a lot of Asian comics. And at that point as the people, ah, can you say that? And people were very offended by that. I, I, right. I come. I can't say what's happening. Black people, you know, or or even more derogatory terms, and like it, because yeah. that's not how it is. You know, we are yeah. an exception to the rule, and um, it riled up a lot of feathers back then. And I know it was seen as a controversial comic. But if you and I know you're a comedy fan, what I do isn't really controversial. It's stand up in its conventional form, but it's very yeah. honest, and it's I'm not trying to be an offensive shop jock. I'm not the Howard Stern of stand up I'm doing stand up comedy but it hadn't been seen by a, a young Indian British man before
0: that point. Yeah. So 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 what was your experience growing up in in, in Britain then? I said what you, coming onto the comedy scene you're having to go into these rooms as the only non-white person in the room did you experience a, a lot of that growing up did you have a, a quite mixed upbringing or what was your your situation i guess
1: yeah i grew up in northwest london in the mean streets of edgware you know, sort of Muntings. <laughs> yeah it's a bad And i went to um i went to a comprehensive middle school and um yeah it was it was pretty rough back then man it was but i uh, tended to have there were quite a lot of hindus gujaratis at my school I'm -hmm. I'm an Indian Sikh and and there were a lot of white people and I tend to mix with the different groups. I didn't tend to, at that point, I'm not quite sure how it works now, but racists tend to stick to each other. And you saw groups of people that tend to resonate with people they can relate to, which is interesting how when I'm on stage, I tend to attract an Asian audience in some areas. I say in London, i get a bigger Asian crowd. But when I go to Cornwall or Exeter or Devon, there's like three Asians in the audience, um, and that's with the same show and the same and the same tour show. But back then when I grew up, it, it was cultural, but not multi-culture. It wasn't as diverse as it is now. And immigration, the influx of immigration changed somewhat since then. And unfortunately, since the days of Enoch Powell and the ris- rivers of blood speech, and I grew up to uh, extreme and violent racism, I lost people, uh, family have been attacked, uh, I've survived attacks and uh, and growing up through that but race was never really discussed in the forefront and I didn't even discuss race on stage when I started stand-up and realized actually it it came it, I kind of locked onto it when I was performing with household names today and I'd perform on the same stages and the same rooms and the same bills and we'd get similar responses you know we'd all have good gigs and then I wouldn't even be considered for a tv show mm. and i was thinking well why is that and i'd speak to agents and they'd say there's not really an audience for you and i was thinking but what, what am i doing do, um, listen to my accent mate is if you didn't know i was indian listen to this podcast yeah. uh, unless i've mentioned that you wouldn't even know and and then i started talking about race slightly more in my set and i realized within the public sphere political um, race discussions are a lot more prominent than in private lives
0: yeah, that's really interesting that that you move into comedy, and when it's just can I come and do a gig, or when you're just put in front of a crowd, entertained, job done, I'm good at what I do. But when someone has to think about it, despite having seen that it works, and you have an audience, they will say on paper you don't have the audience, you don't have the right platform, or that's bizarre, isn't it? That is it, it's it's such an illogical thing that that you can. Get up night in, night out and prove that you're not going to scare the, the, the sensitive white people. What you might do is bring a few people of different races over as well to sit with the white people and enjoy this comedy. But no, not just, it's seen yeah, as a thing.
1: Exactly, Dave. Like Not just with race, but diversity, with gender equality and yeah. um, orientation. Everyone should—I I, I hate to use the word "should" because that's an unrealistic expectation on someone—but the the interactions that we have with each other as human beings—we're essentially one group of people living at this point in human history together. But we make it as difficult as possible. When this is a miracle, the, the point, the fact is, I'm talking to you at this point in the day. What are the chances? within our lifetimes that this could happen this in itself is actually it, it can't happen again you know and and the interactions we have is uh, maybe not explaining this as intellectually as i should but
0: uh... no i completely g- 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 get you it's a completely valid point why do we make it so hard for ourselves it's literally us it's humans that, that make so many of these problems and divisions and issues up and if they're, they're fictional they're completely in our heads there's not Any real reason for any fear or discomfort based on gender, sexuality, race, any of these things. You know, it sounds oversimplistic, but animals aren't going to give a fuck about what colour or sexuality or or anything else that the other
1: animal is. Exactly. There's no uh, homophobia within the animal kingdom Uh, and um, people can still get killed in other countries for it today as we speak, um, unfortunately. There are still high discriminations, highly it's highly discriminatory societies, and um, and you'll get murdered for being a, a different orientation to to the general population of that country, and and that's still going on today within our lifetime. And we think yeah. we think about how society's moved on. Yeah, we we kind of see it a bit more in London, and it's a bit, a bit more as they say. I don't really, it's woke is a slightly loaded term but yeah. it's um, it, it's slightly more diverse or is it accepted or do people talk about it more and there are more marches in London, but th- the world still is. Uh, in, in, I realise we're in the Middle Ages when we hit this um, pandemic and, and the way the country is being run by an inept government who yeah. are doing things three months after they should.
0: And we've accepted it. Again, the thing that annoyed me was the repeated argument of, yeah, but it's a really tough... A situation no one could have done it better and you can look around the country and see numerous countries that did mm. do it better it's like it's, it's the one rare situation where it's an, an an incident or quite literally a pandemic that's affecting everyone the pan in pandemic means all it's it's all of us so we can literally look around the world and go oh no our government has been massively inept and has been massively incorrect in their choices but again i think we've got this bizarrely submissive nature in the UK. I've been thinking about it uh, a lot recently. I think it comes from being a nation that's been ruled, that we have rulers and we've always had rulers and they're they're going off and conquering, but we've always been ruled. I was discussing it recently about how the fact that our national anthem isn't about how great our country is. It's about how great the queen is. And it it literally has the words long to reign over us. We're... we're fetishising someone reigning over us, which is absolutely bizarre, but I think it makes us so accepting of anything the government or the laws say. An easy example I can give is is our drug laws. There's a whole generation of people who will say drugs are illegal, so it is what it is, but they'll go to Amsterdam and they'll try weed because it's illegal there. So So what they're saying is I'm not morally against it, It's just the law. If I went to, for example, one of the countries that you've mentioned where someone can be killed for being gay, I wouldn't think, I'll give that a try. Mm. It's allowed here. I'll I'll kill a gay person. I wouldn't do that because it's against my morals as well. So it's, it's weird that we don't question the laws that we clearly aren't actually morally against, but we've just been told they're wrong and we have to obey our mighty leaders.
1: I remember a film called Midnight Express that reminds me of something you just spoke about. Yeah. Midnight Express was an Oscar-winning film in the 1970s about a, guy, an Amer- a true story about an American... Have you seen this film at midnight? Yeah, yeah. He, he, there was a bit of weed on him and he got a life in prison in Turkey, a true story. Yeah. And you hear stories like that. And I was... it as a ch- I watched that as a kid and that freaks you out. <laughs> it was yeah. a harrowing film. Yeah. Um, and it put me off Turkey, you <laughs> know, really more than... <laughs> yeah. uh, and I was thinking, this guy's got a bit of at that time weed was highly illegal in England but yeah. um yeah it's uh it, the, the drug laws and even in other countries you'll you'll get you'll get shot for a bit of weed and mm. I heard it was a do you remember the DJ who was, apparently was on his trainer and he walked on right I think it was it was a, a drum and bass DJ I am not want to say the name of the wrong DJ here because we're talking about drugs but he he then
0: got put in prison I'm thinking it was groove rider I think so or yeah Fabio yeah either Fabio or, groove yeah, rider. or groove rider, yeah, well, if we're wrong then you know yeah. google it it's fine <laughs> yeah. we don't want to defame
1: anyone yeah <laughs> and, and it was uh, highly affected their careers uh, great DJs uh, but uh, and, and yeah uh, back to your point we live in a, a ruling state it's intrinsic within the society we, it's a class-ridden society England is class it's you yeah. can't buy into class in England you can in America and other countries in Canada and other Western civilizations even in the Middle East, but you can't buy class in England. It's old money. Yeah. You know, um it's a, it it's with, a mess. With comedy. It's like the Cambridge and Oxford, the Cambridge footlights were coming through and it's yeah. a very middle class industry. Now the working classes have it's a very expensive industry. It's similar to I say tennis. You'd have to get coat I used to play tennis and, and it's a very working it's not very working class, it's very middle class to a to, to to pay for your child to Take tennis coaching, yeah. and then you did it's very expensive, and and the classes, and the and the clubs, and the equipment. And with comedy, to afford to sustain a lifestyle in comedy for the first few years, you're not earning money. Mm-hmm. So the middle classes and doing the Edinburgh Fringe Festival for the first few shows, you're losing five to ten thousand pounds a month. Yeah. Plus you're working, so it didn't really attract the working classes. Yeah. It's a very yeah, you
0: need to have disposable income to be able to engage in that. Or mummy and daddy will pay for it. Yeah did you did you have any reluctance when the kind of mainstream TV and whatnot did finally come calling because you'd had to work for a long time without their 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 love and attention and as as such and a few things to big you up the the first British Asian stand up to s- s- sell out Wembley Arena but also on that. You, Doing five nights at the Hammersmith Apollo, which makes it, which means it's got to be w- w- one of the most f- physically l- live seen shows in British history because that's that's so many people seeing l- live in it. So yeah, you've done all that work and done it uh, w- without them. It must have been bittersweet when they finally come knocking and say, well, "Can we have you on this show? Can we have you on that show?" Are you are you reluctant with what comes forward? Well.
1: I don't think they have said come on this show and come on that show. I got to a point of selling Wembley Arena. Uh, Yeah, you're right. I did five London. I did two Manchester Apollos and that was a 150 day tour, including previews uh, and Australia, most of Australia and New Zealand. I toured that around the world. It got sold around the world and I don't think TV shows did. The offer for the odd celebrity thing, which Mm. I've generally said, or generally, pretty much most of the time, I haven't taken up um, you know, as as I do act and uh, do stand up. That's the two my two strengths, I'd say. Uh, some would differ, but the things I'm better at are are stand up and and a bit of acting, rather than being on a celebrity type show, which is a reality based thing. Although saying that, yeah. I did Taskmaster, but I, I wouldn't really classify that in the same. Genre. It's in a league of its own, mm.
0: Taskmaster, and we'll get to that. But yeah, yeah, it's it's its own thing, isn't it? It's it's yeah, it's the dream show for comedians. It seems every time, every time there's an announcement of a lineup, I'm excited for any comedian I'm aware of t- to be on there. It's yeah,
1: yeah. yeah we'll get into that if you want to get into that in a bit. But um, yeah,
0: and a TV shows never really. You're either in that
1: circuit of TV bookers or you're not, and I'd kind of bypass them almost I'd done bits of TV I'd done I'd made enough of an impact on those shows for audiences to trust me with their evening which is a huge responsibility when somebody comes and pays and spends their physical time with me I'm there to deliver I'm not going to take that for granted
0: it's it's a thing that that working class people understand a little bit more because you know that that money isn't easy to come by or even that babysitter isn't easy to come by that that physical time isn't easy to come by so it means a a lot when I was, I was doing my music it's why we would regardless of how big the gig was how busy it was we'd sweat our asses off up there because it's like right no you've paid to come and see us and it means it means the fucking world our name's on the ticket but yours is on the fucking receipt and that's the yeah that's the important one
1: yeah and people say to me paul you should keep your you should push your ticket prices up now my ticket prices are very reasonably priced, and um, if, if you know the industry, you don't walk away with all that money. You're lucky to walk away with some of it, right? Yeah. So, But that's to keep people who can't afford to go to theatre and pay £150 a ticket and, say, for instance, Chappelle's coming to town, £150 a ticket. Now, yeah. that's going to detract certain members of society to, to watch his shows, and I know Dave Chappelle quite well, but that's the price he charges now. He's he's gone into that legendary status, but then at the same time, he's disconnecting with a certain audience that potentially he he would inspire. But that's up to him. But what I find very, like my tickets go on sale at a very reasonable price. And on the morning of sale, they get bought by ticket-touting sites. And then people buy the tickets at £150 to £200 a ticket. And I've sometimes looked at the front row and I said, how did you get tickets? And they said, I paid £450 for two tickets. And I rinsed them for that, but at the same time, it's exploitation, and that's and then they think I'm charging because people don't understand how ticket the system works. Yeah, S- sites like Viagogo are secondary sites and are, yeah. are conventional touts.
0: It's messed up though, right? Because it, th- with that in mind, it justifies someone like Chappelle charging 150 a ticket because there's a logic there that there's not going to be so much of a markup. For the touts, I mean, it goes out the window because there is—is it's, it's Chappelle, People will pay.
1: Well, they're going to be three hundred then, so they'll buy them, yeah. They'll buy five hundred yeah. at, at one fifty and sell five hundred at, at three hundred pound a ticket. For
0: three hundred, yeah, yeah, yeah. And,
1: and 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 there'll be three people there. nine hundred quid plus drinks. You're looking at about one and a half grand of a night out. It's madness. I mean, who's it? got that kind of money? Maybe, Rich people. I, <laughs> maybe it. you, Dave, but not me, mate.
0: <laughs> no. I ain't buying those those tickets and, and and dropping in on them nights out. It's not it's not the way it works. So, I mean, we're speaking more there of appealing to as many people as possible. How do you find the balance, though? Because I've watched a few of your, your, your shows and, and loved them, and, but I've also watched Stuart Lee's shows, mm. and I know that with Stuart there will be certain things that I go, oh, I might have to go and, and read up yeah. on that or understand that and i have that with your shows because there's certain things that are specific stereotypes within the variations of the asian community and things like that that maybe i'm not exposed Mm -hmm. to or don't know but that's fine right that's that should be you shouldn't have to dumb everything down for everyone in the room you get to have those smaller in jokes Mm -hmm. and that means more again on one of your podcasts you talked about um corporate gigs and, and not doing the much. But the, again, the, it was something you touched upon that I was like, it's it's so cheap, but it's so true mm. that you find out John in accounting has been uh, broke his ankle at skiing. If you mention that, it will get the biggest reaction of the night, mm. regardless of your set, because there is that intimacy. And I think that's the beauty of your sets is, overall, there's jokes for everyone and for the whole set. But, but within there, there's kind of a series of in-jokes to pop those small pockets of the crowd and gives them a more intimate experience as such.
1: Um, The, what you just mentioned when you mention somebody in the company while doing a corporate is an idea I got when watching Bob Monkhouse when I was growing up, who would essentially tailor the set for the client, which is what I do when I do a corporate event. That's very rare. And I have done though, I have done a conventional set, but then I would improvise and talk to people in the room and, uh, it's a bespoke set. If I do a wedding, if I do a birthday, yeah. it's about that room and the, the group of people we're talking to because it it's all, it's basically one party there. Yeah. Um, and Stuart, for instance, you talk about how you have to Google, um, his reference points. Um, and interesting how he did my podcast, because he was talking about getting a more, a more diverse audience, because it's middle class white people that go and shit, see him. So he did my podcast, he did my podcast, and I, and I recommended my audience to see him. So his diversity quota changes, because he wants to, he doesn't want to just appeal to middle class white people. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, growing up to Pryor or Jackie Mason, who unfortunately we lost a few months ago, who was a Jewish comic talking about Jews and Gentiles. Is it right for me to be talking about Jewish people when I'm not Jewish? But he'll talk about it because he was a former rabbi. And, he talk, and it's that Jewish New York comic who would talk about the differences between Gentiles, which are non-Jews and Jews, and, and he'd talk about the cultural differences. And in a similar mm. way...
0: Or well, Lenny Bruce Lenny would get Bruce. arrested for his work in 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 that era of of trying to talk about every race and mm. going right, what is offensive and why is it offensive? And he'd literally get arrested at his gigs because of of his speech.
1: Yeah, and, uh, but Lenny Bruce because uh, it was considered hate speech at the time. Unfortunately, yeah. he wasn't considered free speech back in the sixties and would get arrested. Whereas Jackie Mason, uh, as I've mentioned again, is a more mainstream act. Whereas talk about the comparisons and. I'd say that was a huge influence because then I talk about the cultural difference between myself and uh, uh, and and say you know Dave you know yeah. uh, as, as yeah. it, it, Dave is it, it doesn't have to be Dave as such but it's a, an Asian thing in comparison to brown person and those that's not the 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 brunt of my material but it's there's quite a broad spectrum but um, it's interesting how we can talk about things that. Not all of us need to have an encyclopedia of knowledge on because now we're open to and I'd say England and I say London more so. Major cities are more open to those ideas, but when back when I was you know the early two thousands, I'd go down to Exeter, they weren't interested in that. Just talk about yeah. us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Talk about what we know. Yeah. I don't wanna learn anything from this show. No. <laughs> I, wanna, I wanna laugh. Well I mean unless touch upon Taskmaster. I'm not going to hang on it for too long because I want to talk about acting as well because you've been in some great shit. But how was it to do Taskmaster? Because it does seem like it's that show that even the comedians that won't accept a lot of offers or invites mm. will go for Taskmaster because it's just it's a joy. And you were a, a revelation on it. Um, yeah, it was Thanks, a wonderful... Man. No one's sure if you're doing a character, if you're not doing a character. As you've discussed in the, in the podcast, that... You're figuring that out yourself at times. But yeah, how was that to do? And how did you decide how to to navigate it?
1: Well, at that time, I did season three. We're quite a few seasons in now. And that was when it was on Dave. Now it's on channel four. And when I did that show, I think only one season had been on TV. So no one quite knew what the show was. It takes a few seasons for these shows to embed themselves and find a voice. So no one quite knew, and as you can see by the other panelists on my season, is they played it to win. And I played it to win to a certain degree, but I also played it for laughs and entertainment yeah. value. And also, I don't really know who I am much. And offstage is a very different persona to my onstage, because stage you're performing, and offstage when you're doing tasks and you're you're attempting these impossible scenarios how would you approach them? And I approached them very naturally rather than, hey, guys are going to win this. You know, yeah. they, they said, play it as yourself. And I kind of probably did play it more as myself. So people couldn't quite believe and they thought I was taking the piss. But, um, and I still get tweets to this day, considering it was 2016, five yeah. years ago on Dave. And now it's on channel four. And that season was nominated for a BAFTA. It got a nomination that season. And um, yeah, it was... Um, it was interesting because then season two and three were shot at the same time, and they aired two, and then mine was aired after that. And I didn't realize how much of an impact such a show would have. That was filled up. People now come to my tour shows because of and it, yeah. because of that show. And it's very rare for people to go and watch live stand up off the back of a show which isn't stand up. <laughs> it wasn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah It's yeah, not yeah, a stand up show, you know. So um, it's strange how. I don't even look like I do anymore. i obviously it was a lot, I was a lot younger. Not as young as you, because I'm much older than you. But um, I was a younger man then, and uh, I'm quite honoured to be a part and still be spoken about as this guy. I, I've known Greg, and um, my mind's gone blank.
0: Alex Horn.
1: Alex Horn. I've known. <laughs> Alex and <laughs> Greg and yeah. the
0: other guy. Alex
1: and, yeah. Well, Greg and Alex I've known since the the birth of their stand up careers. So when they asked me on the show, it was a no-brainer because you kind of trust your mates in in the business and you respect their work. It's not You don't think they're trying to set you up or it's going to be a stitch-up. So I I took the show and um, I think nobody expected what I brought to the table.
0: I love it. Are are you a social comedian at at shows then? Because it's a weird one. With anything, when you get to the point of doing your own tours, you're just on your own. It's quite a lonely thing but at that point of of coming up and doing the club circuit were you a hang around and and, and get to know everyone or were you a mystery man in the night um I did, did speak to a lot of
1: comics backstage yeah and there was a sense sometimes there were great comics backstage and I've, I started off back in and the days when I started it was I think Russell Brand started exactly at the same time as me yeah Jimmy Carr was mate so I still speak to him now. McIntyre, you know, all that group from back those in those days, you'd keep in contact. But then there were some gigs you went to where the comics weren't as friendly and they were slightly older and, you know, and we were slightly younger and they were slightly more, it was more of a bully, bully-ish type backstage scenario when you go out of town and you're yeah. like a guy in your mid-20s and they were like, how come this guy's on this bill already? Yeah. So so there was sometimes there would be some, uh, you know, as they put it, so
0: for some comics,
1: well, I won't name them, but uh, ironic racism, and they'd use certain words backstage, and you're supposed to try and laugh that off because they thought it was being ironic. But when you're the only non-white, yeah, white,
0: it's comedians all talking. Yeah. It's all there's no holds barred here. Yeah. it like, all
1: right. Very few, but there were a few, uh, and they haven't really got anywhere to this stage anyway because they were so embittered uh, as to why someone yeah. else and you know people go their own pace, and ultimately the journey isn't a comparison between you and someone else's career. It's a comparison between you and yourself, the fight is always against yourself, isn't it? Yeah. We're always competing against ourselves, but we think we're competing against someone else.
0: Yeah, completely. You you mentioned Michael McIntyre there, and I don't think people realise what a killer he was on on smaller gigs, on just in in the club scene. I remember because he got so, so big and was such an overwhelming force, I think he gets looked down upon a bit. But I remember the two times i saw him live it was before i really knew who he was and there wasn't a person in the room not in tears of laughter whereas now i think there'd be a certain section of comedy fans who'd, who'd turn their nose up a bit at a michael mcintyre or whatever else and it's always interesting how those people all of who starts out in the same area and in the same in the same s- s- scene and then what they almost morph into in the in the public eye yeah
1: mcintyre was uh, a heavy hitter. I went to Hong Kong with him. We did the expat gigs out there together. we yeah. done gigs up and down the country. I did four Channel 4 comedy galas at the O2 Arena with him and Lee Evans. We had the same agent at the time. And uh, yeah, he, he delivers. And when you become that big, when you're that stratospheric in your success, you are going to get the haters. And um, yeah. it's like when... I remember when the Dark Knight Rises came out and everyone's like, oh man, this is the best you've got to see. It. And that overhype When you've been overhyped, you're going to get people that aren't going to like you even before they've seen you.
0: Yeah, completely. Um,
1: and he suffers from that slightly, but he's a great comic and he continues to be so. And uh, if you're not into that kind of comedy, that's fine. There's something for everyone. And you can't, not everyone likes the Beatles or the Rolling Stones. Yeah. yeah. And they're the biggest bands of all time. So yeah. not everyone likes me and that's fine. It's, it might not be for you. But there's enough people that do, and if there's people that end, are entertained and are into what I do, that's great. If it's not for you, that's fine. But you don't have to threaten to kill someone for it. <laughs> yeah. That's... yeah.
0: I've, I've never understood the British appetite for disliking things. It's like, cool. If you don't like it, just move on. Yeah. Like, you don't have to, it doesn't have to be part of your life. You don't have to actively dislike it every day of the week. You can just go on with the things that you like.
1: When you see a busker on the street and he's playing, a track from the Beatles, and he's asking for spare change. Do you stop and saying, "What is this shit, you wanker?" and kick his? Yeah, start kicking it. <laughs> Get out of <laughs> here! I don't want to read this. Just walk, walk on.
0: Yeah, carry on walking, mate. Yeah, it's as simple as that. Well, I've, I've got to wrap things up s- s- soon, and I want to talk a, a little bit about acting. I, the most recent thing I saw you in was the Cleaner with the aforementioned Greg Davis. You're popping up in cr- Cruella. You've been doing a full show, Devils, in the US. How much of a focus is acting? And like, what's the balance of, I guess, who you see yourself as, as a comedian or an actor? Or are you, do you want to focus more on, on one or the other?
1: Yeah, I've done two seasons of Devils now, just finished and wrapped on season two, which is going out early next year, 2022, which is the Patrick Dempsey drama around the banking crisis. And I did, I did six months on the first season, which was aired in, on CW in America and, and other countries and sky in the UK. But, um, it's interesting. Like that was actually an audition. I went up for that. and Nick Horan cast me for that, who did Sherlock and Doctor Who. Yeah. Um, you know, and I thought, oh, my, I'm at my depth here. These are the proper actors now.
0: <laughs> and I'm a comic
1: and, and I'm, I'm getting, I'm getting, a, I'm a regular in a, in a drama. In a serious yeah. drama. So people now, didn't at that, now I'm getting people come to my shows because they look me up and realize, oh, it's a stand-up. And, and at the same time, some people watch it thinking, I can't take you seriously because you're a stand-up. So yeah. I'm in the place of, say, not to the degree of Robin Williams, but Robin Williams started doing serious roles and he was doing yeah. hilarious stand-up. And it's rare to see a stand-up in the UK do serious drama and stand-up. Yeah. Prior did it, yeah. but it was more comedy roles, and the breakthrough was Superman Three. But yeah. um, Greg Davis cast—we well, didn't even cast me for—he just offered me the role in the cleaner <laughs> with Helena yeah. Bonham Carter. So the next thing I'm on set with Helena Bonham Carter and Greg Davis playing a schoolboy. So, yeah. <laughs> um, but I'd see myself more as a stand-up, and I see these things as a bonus because you coming from the acting world. When you audition, and I have auditioned for big films, which I can't mention due to non-disclosure agreement signings, Yeah, that they
0: are lottery tickets. And to be considered... I forget so many of them things I've signed. Yeah. I've talked about almost all of them on this <laughs> podcast because I, I sign it at the time, but once the film's out, I'm like, ah, fuck it, I was meant to be in there. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wanted to be in there. I know, I know. There's, and
1: there are so many of those huge blockbusters that you can't mention... For legal yeah, right. reasons, but the point is: if they're listening to this podcast, yeah, you've made it because they're <laughs> paying an interest. Yeah, uh, but yeah, they never, exactly. you know they never listen to my podcast anyway. Um, <laughs> if if Tarantino was listening, you know, uh, the audition that I did for Kill Bill, <laughs>
0: Volume <laughs> Volume Four. Uh, uh I can't believe he went for Uma Thurman in the end <laughs> I thought you would have been a far better choice but you know kill Chowdhury it could be the next <laughs> kill
1: Chowdhury yeah um that would have been amazing. even he's doing he's doing podcasts at the moment to promote yeah to promote things he never done British one so it'd be very interesting if you you were, or I got him on ours
0: yeah, I'd be w- well up for it. He's a legend, right? <laughs> he's a legend, but a different... Have you seen the documentary of him on Amazon Prime, yeah. which was where your stand-up is also yeah. available now? He's not... Well, it's amazing. He's not even in it. <laughs> it's just people talking about it. No, <laughs> just people talking about how great he is. That's the kind of documentary <laughs> that you want made.
1: Well, he did a few podcasts recently, didn't he, when he was promoting a book? Yeah. So yeah. he did Joe Rogan's uh, and, a, and a few more um, and got a lot of stick for the Bruce Lee stuff, didn't he?
0: yeah. Yeah, but talking about what a, a, a fraud Bruce Lee is, essentially, yeah. or was. Yeah,
1: um, and uh, Shannon Lee took exception to that. And uh, a lot of uh, the Asian audiences, um, I'd say, killed Bill at the whole... I mean, it was a homage to Bruce Lee, really, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, 100%, yeah. See, so the
1: thing is, with, with stand-up, you copy someone else's joke, it's plagiarism. In film, <laughs> it's a homage. <laughs> yeah oh yeah, it's, it's a real film. Oh, it's a homage we're paying tri- no one knows that you've just nicked an entire outfit and in t- a plot line Reservoir Dogs was a Japanese film yeah and yeah, it's, it's, it's madness isn't it Seven Samurai wasn't it
0: yeah yeah but I guess he. I guess it's that owning up to it isn't it it's the it's, it's the, the saying oh these were my infl- I like Tarantino has always been big on mm. wearing his influences on his like as a as a badge of honour Akiru Karasawa, so you know. I guess it, yeah. I guess it removes anyone's right to go. You rip that off because he's like, well, yeah, I know. Mm. I've got a badge about it here. This is, this is, this is is what I done. You can't k- catch him out in that no, way. No, you couldn't. I guess. You can never
1: do a routine from prior and say, oh, I'm playing homage to. Uh, yeah, it's it's
0: yeah. It's, this it's, is a tribute to classic prior.
1: Music, you're done for plagiarism. Stand up. Yep, it hasn't. It, there, there are cases now, but no one's ever been done for plagiarism. There's been pair but film is fine. They literally yeah, help yourself. Yeah, they literally lift
0: artistic license. Artistic
1: license, they lift chunks of stuff. And Tarantino, he wouldn't be where he is if it wasn't for Bruce Lee. And He should be a bit more grateful to uh, Bruce Lee's.
0: Yeah. Yeah, it's fair. It's fair. Well, to uh, to, uh, to wrap things up and speaking of public outrage, I want to know what your relationship is with social media because you've done a lot of content on there. You've used it really well over the years. How do you feel about it? Is it somewhere you just, you put stuff? Is it somewhere you get properly into and use it, use it? Or is it, you know, a tool for promotion?
1: Back in the day, it was very different to where it is now. Now the companies are caught on and monetize on their, on the following that you have online, I've got just under 500,000 people on Facebook, for instance. Yeah. but i can't reach those 500,000 anymore.
0: Yeah. Because, because you have to pay to boost it exactly. to say hello and
1: remember back when they said they're going to pay to reach and people were like they're not going to do that. But if you have an official page, i could put a post out saying i'm touring next week, right? And it will get if i'm lucky to a few hundred people and it says boost. And
0: and and if it gets if it gets 500 people, it will say this post is performing really well. Mm. Do you want to boost it exactly. for a couple of grand? It's like How's it performing well? Yeah. It's, reached, it's reaching 0.01% of the people it's, who have actively said, I want to hear from this man. It's disgusting.
1: I mean, they can change their rules and regulations at any time. Yeah. And I would put a video out, and I remember we used to get a quarter of a million views overnight. I yeah. said, great, now you're lucky to get 25,000 overnight. Very lucky. Yeah. You're lucky to get... Fu- yeah. Because they restrict it purposely, so you pay to hit... It's, it's become a mailing list that you yeah. pay for. And if yeah. you had a mailing list of five hundred thousand people, it would cost a lot of money to reach them. Yeah. So they monetize as much as they can and they were fine. They were like, come in, yeah, we'll do everything for you. Yeah, here's everyone look at this but I hit it at that point. I was lucky to be hitting those fans at that point where I picked up a fan base. It's changed so much now. It's monetized and commercialized to the point where it's um it can be a detriment to Uh, And it's just become a basically it's become another billboard on the side Mm -hmm. of a motorway or on the Mm. side of a a dual carriageway where you put your poster up and say, um, I've got a concert here. That's what it's become. Except
0: they've got you that they've got you by the the balls even more, though, because this billboard is directly outside of a load of your fans Mm. houses. It's not just in some random place. Exactly. This is actually right outside loads of people who are interested in you. So the value of that billboard goes through the roof the fuckers the, Exactly
1: the only good thing about say Twitter is if you're a verified account and you have a problem with a company I tweet them all of a sudden I'll get a response so I've had a problem with yep. uh, TelebT BT or something and I tweet them yep. then they'll say oh we've dm'd you because they don't want it to be public Yeah companies don't like bad public publicity
0: Yeah when you I've got to the point now where I've, I've realized that you don't even need, need to do the public tweet like you can go straight to a dm and they'll deal with it in anticipation uh. of the tweet that is to come i've had that with a, f- a few different companies and again it's probably the only reason i've still got twitter i honestly think it's one of the worst places Ooh. in the world and it, it does if i spend too much time on there i'm i'm miserable so i'll just post every now and then i'll do what i've got to do but then it's handy if 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 my internet isn't working and I need to hit, hit, hit the appropriate company up and go, can someone sort this out, please? No, exactly. <laughs> can someone deal with it? I've just had a situation. I've been on the phone for half an hour. Yeah, for days. I'm just
1: going to tweet you instead. I've had a problem with BT, for example, recently, and uh, it's gone to the customer service. Then they, it basically accelerates to the point where you can talk to someone. I've had a massive problem with Scottish Power, and um, it's dms or emails back and forth it's supposed to go to, to their deadlock and whatever yeah. and they just keep on sending me reminders because they're not sending me the right bills and and this is what the general public have to deal with on a daily so luckily we can go public it's it's disgusting the way p- customers are treated by huge massive multinational companies yeah um for the sake of a pound or two pounds and this is how they treat the countries. Customers as a whole, and now with the get, the prices going up, and yeah, it's a strange place we're in, man. I don't want to end it on a downbeat here, but um,
0: no, I feel you. And it, it's, 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 we're partly to blame as a people because we go on Ryanair or EasyJet or whoever else, and we say how bullshit it is that they've lost our luggage, that they've landed us 10 miles away, like 100 miles away from where we're meant to be. All this other shit. Next time our holiday comes around, we'll. We look at the cheapest option and we go again. Mm. You know, we've we've built a society that we want perceived value over anything else. Mm. That therefore, these companies know that if they can offer us or appear to offer us that value, then they can tr- tr- treat us like shit. Like, what are we going to do? Go and pay more somewhere else? Nah, ain't worth it. <sighs> That's the thing, you know. It's a good end of, end of so, the uh, chat, isn't it? This is leaving us both in a great mood to go on with our day. Now I've
1: got all these other admin things. This thing, people think, oh, you know, you're out there on stage and you're out there acting, and we're dealing with this admin bollocks
0: all day. It's outrageous, mate. Well, I mean, I will end it on the fact that you're finally getting to go out on the road again, and that must be a, a buzz, right? As you said, it's it's you've spent years cultivating that audience and that crowd. Global pandemic. Paused all of that. It did a lot of horrible things on top of that. Mm. But, you know, everything's r- relative and personal. Are you excited to get back out there and get to, to go and do this and, and be on stage and be the Paul Chowdhury on stage? Well, it's
1: putting that Superman cape back on yeah. and getting back out there. I've been doing previews. i been getting the show ready. And to get out and do what I feel as if I'm meant to do, this isn't something I've learned. It's just something... It sounds a bit pretentious but say it's in me it's it's uh it's a natural yeah. ability to be able to perform to people like, oh, how do you get up there in front of all those people you, you just do it you don't really think about it and uh it's something that i can't wait to get back out on in those big rooms that we didn't even know when and if we'd see again at yeah. one point we think well, what because we were recession proof for years and we never saw this one coming it's like trying to perform in you know, and it is like, and I talk about it, it is coming out of a war yeah. and getting back on stage again. Some of us have come through bad times. Some of us have come through a war and we consider ourselves lucky to have survived. And uh, yeah, it's an honor to get back out there and it's got to be emotional getting back out there again and standing on that stage that sold out within, within some within hours, some within days. I couldn't believe the demand for it. Yeah, uh, Unfortunately, that has benefits and drawbacks because then, unfortunately, people are paying up to £500 a ticket, which I don't want <laughs> them
0: to do. Yeah,
1: yeah, that's the tough side. You know what I mean? So um, getting back out there, uh, doing a couple of the Hammersmith Apollo. Just the, I'm doing, it's packed now between now. Well, it depends when this goes out, between the end of October and the end of December. So let's see. I might, well, it's the other tour live in it got extended three times and sold around the world, so... Hopefully, the government, well, I, I don't say hopefully the government won't mess up again, but we need to keep the country going and do things before crisis point. Yeah. So we can stay functional. All you've got to do is keep society moving. That's what you've got to do, Boris. It's, it's not, it Seems simple, right? Easy enough. It seems, it seems simple, but, you know, I did a preview last week and people couldn't come because there's no petrol yeah you know like like we've come out of a pandemic and we've come out of lockdown and now people are being pushed back into lockdown because they can't get anywhere yeah that like,
0: just doesn't make sense what the f- the fuck is next is the is is the constant question but i've appreciated your time today sir i'm ex- excited for you to get back out there and um yeah thank you for giving me your time it's been a pleasure you
1: too dave hopefully see you soon again mate
0: yes hopefully see you soon nice one
1: You've been listening to Scroobius Pips Distraction Pieces.
0: There we go. That was Paul Chowdhury. I hope you enjoyed that. He's wonderful. And and I said, this is a bonus, a Monday bonus. What a treat and what a joy and what a time we're living in. I'm going to be back on Wednesday with Edgar Wright on the podcast. So, yeah, this is a big week. And with Sleaford Mods last week, Jimmy Carr the week before, we've got some good ones. It's bit, it's, it's high times on the Distraction Pieces podcast, so I'll keep it brief. Stay sane and stay safe, and I will see you on Wednesday. Ta-ta.